On the one hand, men who are authentically committed are doing very well. And this isn't just raw, raw language. This is empirical research. So we can encourage Christian men, you know, you're doing well. But the church also needs to reach out to these nominals who kind of hang around the fringes of the Christian church and claim a Christian identity, but who are actually doing worse than secular men. People have asked me, why do you think they're actually worse? Um, and it appears that, you know, they're taking Christian language like headship and submission, but infusing it with secular definitions of entitlement and dominance and control. But what they have that's different from secular men is they think the church approves because they're using Christian language. And so they think that they have permission from their religion to act like this, and it ends up making them behave worse than secular men. And so it, clearly the church has a job to do here. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, podcast listeners of all ages, welcome to episode 51 of the Jelly Thoughts podcast. Uh, that's how I open most podcasts, uh, but uh, this really is uh, an interesting one uh, in light of that, because today's topic, uh, boys and girls, uh, ladies and gentlemen, is about the topic of masculinity, kind of. Uh, it's actually about a book, and the book is uh, called The Toxic War on Masculinity, and it is written by Professor Nancy Piercy. Uh, Nancy is an author of all kinds of books, as you hear as we go here uh, through the conversation. The one that kind of piqued my interest most was her uh, recent book, Love Thy Body, which came out uh, last year, and uh, oof, was just an absolute kind of head wrecker for me in many respects. Um, and so, but this one will do no less damage to your head uh, if you're going to go and wrestle through it. It's really uh, challenging and fascinating read. Uh, it's not available yet, uh, but it will be really soon. And so uh, if you want to pre-order that, uh, you can find it on Amazon or other places where you look at books. And obviously there'll be a link in the show notes. Uh, Professor Piercy is the um, scholar in residence at Houston Christian University. And she has a very fascinating life that kind of led her up to uh, where she is today writing. Uh, I guess many people would consider her, in some respects, a conservative voice uh, within the church, uh, and that is not where she came from, which is part of what makes her, uh, I think, a powerful and uh, insightful uh, voice to listen to. Not necessarily always to agree with, but to listen to. I think you'll find this conversation is uh, going to give you a number of those things that you may or may not agree with, but it'd be helpful for you to be able to hear. I know it was for me. I opened my eyes to see some things in a different way, and it's always good to get that perspective. So enough blabber about the blabber. Without any further ado, my conversation with Professor Nancy Pearson. So Houston, I'm guessing it's not cold today? <sighs> I'm already sweating. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in a, my study, which doesn't get the air very well. Okay. So, yeah, by the time, by the end of the interview, I'm wilting <laughs> we'll try to keep it keep it light um do you do, you do a lot of edu uh, teaching during the summer uh, months or is it more writing and research right no now? right i mean i do whatever they ask me to do but i've only been asked to teach one summer course so far okay. um but i do a lot of uh reading groups for my books so if i have a book in progress i'm i'm still on zoom all summer because um, I do reading groups to sort of rub off the rough edges, you know, um, and so that I don't unintentionally offend. If I offend because you disagree with, with me, that's okay. But if, I, if okay. it's because I phrase, phrased it awkwardly, you know, um, then I have these reading groups that help me to catch all of those. Well, that's fascinating. So, so what, uh, for example, with this particular book with, uh, uh, yeah, which I will set up right now, what's it called? The Toxic War on masculinity um with that uh with that group or that book rather what, what was the process that went into like reading groups and kind of getting as you said the rough edges kind of like uh, ground off yeah so i have uh, i was also allowed to build a course on it so i taught the manuscript uh, and that was fun because what i do is when i teach a manuscript i get to teach all of my favorite sources too you know right you know, introduce my students to all the um firsthand uh, sources that that I used and I, I enjoy that um, and then I also I've 
uh, for Love Thy Body, had a, I had a faculty group, which is helpful. Mm. Um, this time I just said faculty as expert readers. Um, I have, I've had homeschool groups of, so the high schoolers, you know, I get a chance to hear from high schoolers. There's, um, and sometimes I just invite people I know. And so that will consist of, of friends and former students and so on. And there's a reasonable faith group here. Uh, I don't know if you know William Lane Craig, you know, the mm-hmm. apologist. So he has these local groups that are called reasonable faith groups. They've done, they've gone through my last three books. Oh, wow. <laughs> so th- they've been a really helpful group. I mean, it's yeah. not the same people every every time. Um, but yeah, they've been incredibly generous in going through my books. And I, I love getting feedback. Um, uh, like I said, there are times when you just don't know how a certain phrasing might hit other people. Right. And and the most common um, compliment I get for Love Thy Body is it's so compassionate. And mm-hmm. I say, that's because I ran it through so many people. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> Do you not consider yourself to be an overly compassionate person? <laughs> I, I Well, I, I'm more so than most people. Um, but I mean, I'm a kind of gentle person. But um, nonetheless, uh, it really makes a difference when you talk to people who are there. Um, right. You know, I knew I, I, I have friends who are homosexual. I have friends who have gender dysphoria and wondering if they're transgender. But you know what? Oddly enough, I didn't know anyone who uh, had an abortion or who had admitted it. Right. Um, and I that so and that chapter uh, polls show that young people are much more pro-life than the baby boomer generation and so i i wasn't quite as careful and then i had a reading group where three women had had abortions mm. and i got their side of the story and one in particular whose story i do tell um she was attending a christian college and she was raped by an ex, a former boyfriend in her dorm room yeah it was revenge rape he was mad at her for breaking up with him and she he put date rape drug in her drink because she kind of passed out she was kind of in and out of consciousness and that's how anyway so i have to tell you that the whole tone of that chapter changed (laughs) when i met people who had had abortions and heard their stories so that would be an example where it really makes a difference yeah that's fascinating. Um, yeah, so the, that book that you're referring to, uh, "Love Thy Body," is actually the reason that I reached out to you in the first place. Oh. I had uh, I had heard uh, I'd heard about it, and I was like, oh, "I'll pick it up." And uh, yeah, I found it to be just like a kind of a mind blowing uh, book. Very, very, uh, very challenging, and kind of like what you alluded to already. Not exactly uh, light subject matter, right? It's very much uh, it's some heavy heavy waters, and it's because it's trying to interact with some really heavy questions that are kind of in the in the air around us and so so it makes sense that it's kind of you know, difficult reading but i i i kind of i was at the tail end of that book's uh it's not that the book has i think it has a lot of lifespan ahead uh, but as it is with uh, somebody yeah. who's in, in the music world uh myself i understand that there's release cycles and so you're you're kind of always trying to set up uh for publicity whatever the next thing is so by the time i've reached out to you for that we were kind of on the tail end of promoting love thy body and but you're like your your people said hey there's a new one coming. And so I was able to, and I, you know, true to form, apparently it's also a little bit controversial and it is about the uh, war on uh, masculinity. So, um, so yeah, this particular book here, um, I mean, why don't you set it up a little bit for us, if you don't mind. Uh, it's, uh, well, I do want to ask a question about the particular placement of the word toxic, but I'll save that for after. And then I'll just kind of ask you what in your, in your life, what in your reading, what in your just, you know, the things that came across your newsfeed or came across your, your dinner table, what led you to read, to write this particular book? Well, I was pretty shocked at the level of hostility that is considered acceptable to express against men today, even in respected um, outlets. Like the Washington Post had an article titled, Why Can't We Hate Men? I thought, really? The Washington Post? <laughs> the Huffington Post, uh, one of the editors said, my new, my new year's resolution is kill all men. You can buy T-shirts that say, so many men, so little ammunition. And there are books out too with titles, very blatant titles like, I hate men, and no good men, and are men necessary? 
so I was pretty surprised at the and men, by the way, not only was I surprised about women writing these articles, but the a male author who writes talking about healthy masculinity is like talking about healthy cancer. And you may have seen this one because it was in the news recently, so it's not in the book. Um, but James Cameron, the director of the movie Avatar, said testosterone is a toxin and you need to work it out of your system. So the, first of all, I wanted to understand where is this coming from? Because I don't think we can deal effectively with any social trend unless we know where it came from, how it developed. And so that was my first interest is and, and as you can see in the book, I spend a lot of time just kind of going historically through, through stages of, of how the concept of masculinity changed over time. Um, so that, that, that was my first reason. So, and so you can think of it. That's the problem. My second reason was I found the solution. <laughs> so so um, the solution is I was reading books by sociologists on Christian men and found out that there's a lot of really good news about Christian men. And most people don't know that because they are often listed as exhibit A of toxic masculinity. Right? if you have any concept of male headship or authority in the home, um, in fact, let me read you a few of these just because it's easy to find on the internet, but um, it's, it, this is from a Christian publication. It is no secret that abuse is prevalent in conservative churches that embrace headship theory. Or the, the co-founder of the Church 2 movement wrote, the theology of male headship feeds the rape culture that we see permeating American Christianity today. And what I found is that's not true. You know, these, these guys are not paying attention to the data from the social sciences. So the and the social scientists were partly reacting to these criticisms. They were saying, where's your evidence? I mean, look at these accusations. Where's your evidence? Mm -hmm. And so they went back and did the studies. And most of these are fairly recent, which is probably why they haven't gotten out into the public yet. I had to go digging in the academic sociological journals to find most of this. But it turns out that, according to the studies, um, evangelical men are the most loving husbands. And by the way, they do interview the wives separately. So these are the women reporting the highest level of happiness with their husband's expressions of love and appreciation. Evangelical men are the most engaged with their children, both in terms of shared activities like sports and church youth group, and in terms of discipline, like setting limits on screen time or enforcing bedtime. Evangelical couples are the least likely to divorce. And the really surprising finding was they have the lowest rates of domestic violence and abuse of any major group in America. So I really wanted to, I mean, this was like the final reason I said, I got, I have to write this book because nobody knows this. Let me give you just one quote um, because this was in the New York Times of all places. My my sort of go-to sociologist, the one who did the largest study, is named Brad Wilcox. He's at the University of Virginia. And, and he's considered perhaps the top marriage sociologist in the country. So he does get published in places like the New York Times and the Washington Post and so on. But in the New York Times, he writes, uh, and this is a direct quote, it turns out that the happiest wives, the happiest of all wives in America... And by the way, the reason they focus on the wives, of course, is the assumption is that if you believe in any sort of male authority, you become an overbearing, oppressive, abusive patriarch. So they, they're especially concerned about what the wives report. It turns out that the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives. Fully 73% of wives who hold conservative gender values and attend religious services regularly with their husbands have high quality marriages. So, but first of all, I was surprised. I was surprised the New York Times published that. But that was kind of the, you know, problem solution. You know, I saw a problem and I realized we have a solution. It's just that nobody knows about it. And so I wanted to get that out by writing the book.
So yes, so there's a lot uh, to respond to kind of right in there. It's wonderful, wonderful reason to write the book. I mean, it's always great when you see a problem and it's probably a lot more uh, rewarding when you happen to see a solution to kind of go along with it. Um, so one one question to ask really quickly before we go any further. Uh, with the terminology that we, what we're using, when we, when we say um, the, uh, and, I'm, and I'm sorry, you have to look up the toxic war on masculinity. Um, obviously, the, the play in words a little bit is toxic masculinity is kind of what we're playing on. This is a very popular, uh, popular way of framing it. In your, in your estimation, in, in the, I mean, obviously, there's probably a bit of a, a breadth in how this is being interpreted. But when people say toxic masculinity, are they saying, is there an, an an indefinite article in front of that. So are they saying that like there is a type of masculinity that is toxic or are they saying kind of full stop the, the adjective of masculinity, the noun of masculinity is in and of itself by essence toxic. Yeah. So if you press people who use the phrase, and by the way, I don't use the phrase. That's why, um, I had to do that play on words in the title because I did not want, I wanted to get both words in because that's the phrase, but I didn't want to use the phrase because that assumes I accept it. Sure. And so, yeah. So people, people sort of do a double take when they see the title, like what, what? Um, And of course, most people, if you press them, will say, uh, no, no, of course we don't mean all masculinity is toxic. But the message that gets across, I think, a lot of times is uh, uh, at least men often take it this way, that that it, they're essentially saying, if not all, at least most forms of masculinity are toxic. When I told my class I was writing a book on masculinity, one of my male students shot back, what masculinity? It's been beaten out of us. Right. So <laughs> I think that's a, a more common experience among men and and boys. I quote a psychiatrist. uh, She writes for the Wall Street Journal. And she said, I'm getting more and more young men who are depressed because they feel like they're growing up in a culture that's hostile to masculinity. So I do think that that's how a lot of people take it. And it it may be one of the reasons that men men and boys are falling behind today. You know, for all the concern about men being in top levels of power, on average, men are doing worse today. So, and and most people know this in education, for example, boys are falling behind at all levels of education from kindergarten to university. Hmm. More women than men are going to graduate school and even professional schools like law and medicine. Men are more likely to commit suicide. They're more likely to be addicted to drugs and alcohol. They're more likely to be involved in crime. I used to work for an international ministry called Prison Fellowship. And so we knew 90% of people sitting behind bars are male. Uh, and and recently, m- male unemployment has gone down, down to depression era levels. It's not showing up in the statistics because they're not looking for work. And so it takes deeper research. But I've I've uh, reading the research is they have they say it is now at depression era levels and male life expectancy has gone down. Women's has remained the same. So it's not a general trend. It's male life expectancy that has gone down in recent years. And there's a an, um, a magazine called The New Scientist, and it had an article in which someone said the the major demographical factor for early death now is being male. So I think that we need to maybe stop and rethink our strategy. It's wonderful that we've had uh, programs for for girls to get ahead in school, for example. There's a lot of uh, female-friendly curriculum that's been devised and so on. But it might be time to start looking at men and boys and is there a better way to support them. And just calling them toxic does not usually have a beneficial effect. Mm. It's also kind of confusing in an era where uh, if you have like a a t-shirt that says, you know, kill all men or, you know, toxic, you know, toxic masculinity. uh, And yet even the very concepts of femininity, femininity and masculinity themselves are kind of like really unclear. Uh, So we're kind of simultaneously heightening or under potential awareness of the idea that one of these genders is not like the other. One of these genders is not the same and like not super good. 
but then also kind of like casting doubt and dispersions upon what genders are kind of in general. I feel like that's a kind of a really complicated cocktail of, of just people not really knowing what to do and what's what when they walk through the world, right? Well, um, well I, I deal with transgenderism in my earlier book, so I don't in this book. But what I do put it right at the beginning of the book, um, I found that this was helpful to cite a, a sociological study on you know what men how do they define masculinity and there's a there's a history behind this the reason that i put this right at the beginning of the book is because i was getting um often very hostile and confused responses to the book i mentioned that i uh, t- before we went on the air um i mentioned that i've taught the man when in when the book was still in manuscript form i taught it in my classroom i formed multiple reading groups so that i could get lots of feedback and um and when those people would tell their family and friends oh we're going through a book on masculinity invariably the first question was whose side is she on with that tone right whose side is she on with the assumption you, you know that you have to either be for masculinity or against masculinity. You know, you have to think it's, you have to be a, a male bashing feminist or you, you have to be an angry reactionary. Right. And so I put this right at the beginning of the book because it kind of diffused that. It was a study done by a sociologist in which he found that there were really two scripts for masculinity out there. He's fairly well known. And so he travels the world giving lectures and he devised a sort of clever experiment where he asked young men um, two questions. And he got the same answers from Australia to Germany to Brazil. He, he got the same answers. So he, his first question was, what does it mean to be a good man? If you're at a funeral and in the eulogy, somebody says he was a good man. What does that mean? And everywhere around the world, people, men, had basically the same answer. They had no problem answering this. And, and I'm going to actually read you the responses so you hear it in their own words. Honor, duty, integrity, sacrifice, do the right thing. Stand up for the little guy, be a provider, be a protector, be responsible. And the sociologists would ask them, well, where'd you learn that? And they'd say, well, it's just in the air we breathe. And if they were in the West, a Western nation, they would say, it's our Judeo-Christian heritage. Mm-hmm. So then he would follow up with a second question. And he'd say, what does it mean if I say man up, be a real man? And then young men would say, no, 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 that's completely different. And again, I'll read you the response. That means be tough, strong, never show weakness, win at all costs, suck it up, be competitive, get rich, get laid. So in other words, there are two competing scripts for masculinity mm-hmm. out there, or I should say in men's heads, um, you know, men are made in God's image. And so they do have an intuitive awareness of what it means to be good. You know, they know innately that their unique strengths are not given them to get whatever they want, but to provide, to protect, and if necessary, to fight for those they love. But cult- you know, many cultures impose upon men the, the real man script, uh, which is, well, which has most of the traits that people today consider toxic, right? At least if they're decoupled from the good man, um, then it can easily slide into dominance, control, um, entitlement, and so on. Mm-hmm. And so I conclude from that that the real debate is not so much between men and women. It's within men's own heads between these two competing scripts for masculinity, yeah, and, and the good versus the real, I don't know if you want to call it a dichotomy or a, a couple of different ways, like a versus kind of a way of thinking about it, reminded me actually, again, of Love Thy Body when you had the, the kind of the upper story and the, the lower story, a helpful way of kind of thinking through, um, you know, inequalities that come your way and then how you can kind of think those things through. Near the beginning of a conversation, you mentioned some pretty kind of startling statistics to yourself at the very least, the idea that kind of, uh, you use the word here evangelical. I'm not sure. Sh- I don't remember that you necessarily use the word evangelical in the book, but the idea of essentially a kind of Christian, a Christian uh, men and women uh, and Christian men in particular, having uh, virtues that ended up kind of engendering relatively healthy and happy marriages in terms of self-reporting in these surveys at the very least. But you ended up making a distinction 
um, which was a very important one, which was that it, these were not people who merely claimed, uh, quote unquote, to be Christians, not people who just like check the box, but people who were regularly and actively engaged in faith communities. They went to church, as it were, <laughs> relatively regularly. Uh, was there any other surprising things that you found in that survey? One of the ones for me that I found uh, was that apparently it increased their sexual satisfaction as well as a married couple. Uh, I thought that was a surprising statistic, right? Especially in the narrative that we, we hear about uh, how those things normally lay themselves out. But yeah, was there any other, other things that you saw in there that were worth kind of um, digging into further? Yeah, so the main pushback I get uh, from Christians is, well, wait wait a minute, haven't we all heard that Christians divorce at the same rate as everyone else? And I, in my research, I found that that is actually one of the most widely quoted statistics by Christian leaders. And, you know, I'm guessing they're trying to motivate people you know, negatively. But anyway, it turns out that it's false. And researchers went back to the data and they separated out, as you said, they separated out men who are really authentically committed Christians and attend church regularly from nominal Christians. And nominal Christians would be men who might check the Baptist box in a survey like this, but who actually do not attend church very often, if at all. And the differences between these groups were just astonishing. So nominal, oh, and I should define that. So nominal, my students don't even know what that word means. So it means in name only. Right. N-O-M is Latin for name. As a nominal French speaker, Christ- I know this. Le nom. Oh, yes, that's, that's, that's exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it turns out that nominals, um, nominal, their wives report the lowest level of happiness. They're the least involved with their children. Nominal couples have the highest rate of divorce. And then the real shocker, they have the highest rate of domestic violence of any group in America. So this is stunning. Uh, Brad Wilcox is uh, the one I quoted earlier in the New York Times. Well, he wrote an article for Christianity Today in which he said, the most violent husbands in America are Protestant evangelical men who who attend church rarely, if at all. So this is why the numbers get skewed. If you take the committed Christian men who do better than secular men, and then you take the nominals who do worse than secular men, but who claim the label Mm -hmm. of evangelical, and you put those together, you're going to get skewed results. And, And in fact, in the past, most researchers have put these two groups together. And and that's why we didn't we didn't see this distinction before, mm-hmm. but now that they've made it was Brad Wilcox in particular who who uh, has written a whole book. He did the largest study. He's written a whole book on it, and he was very careful to make that distinction. And and by the way, in terms of those who are truly committed, let me read you uh, one of one of my favorite quotes from him because um, a friend of mine said, "Wait a minute, he's at UVA." <laughs> He's got, he's not in a Christian, you know, environment. He's probably in a very hostile secular environment. And so he concludes his study by saying, academics need to cast aside their prejudices. He's speaking, of course, to his colleagues. Mm-hmm. Academics need to cast aside their prejudices about religious conservatives and evangelicals in particular. Conservative Protestant married men with children are consistently the most active and expressive fathers and the most emotionally engaged husbands. And so this is what we need to help people recognize. And it might be an important thing for churches in particular to recognize that on the one hand, men who are authentically committed are doing very well. And this isn't just raw, raw language. This is empirical research. You know, these are solid studies. Um, these are facts. So we can encourage Christian men, you know, that you're doing well. But the church also needs to reach out to these these nominals who kind of hang around the fringes of the Christian church and claim a Christian identity, but who are actually doing worse than secular men. People have asked me, why do you think they're actually worse? Um, And it appears that, you know, they're taking Christian language like headship and submission, but infusing it with secular definitions of entitlement and dominance and control but what they have what they have that's different from secular men is they think the church approves 
<laughs> because they're using Christian language. And so they think that they have permission from their religion to act like this. And it ends up making them behave worse than secular men. And so it, clearly the church has a job to do here. Yeah, there's this, uh, I mean, that makes me think of the, uh, I'm, uh, put me on the spot for which commandment it is, but it's one of them. Uh, the idea that we should bear, uh, not bear the Lord's name in vain. And uh, Carmen Joy Imes has done some work on kind of what that means. And it's not necessarily about swearing, right? It's about like how you carry the name of God with you. And so if you have the name of Christ upon you, whether it's on a survey result or the cross that you wear, and then you're you're carrying that in situations that are in no way what Christ would want, you're kind of tarnishing the, the broader name of, of Christianity. I mean, Christianity is a little bit less important, much more important, the name of Christ himself. Yeah, that's a, that's a big challenge to try to help people see the difference between just claiming it and actually living it, right? So what kind of pushback though uh, so I'm, I, I want to be, I found this a very helpful and, and stirring book, but if you don't ask probing questions, you won't get uh, insightful answers. No doubt you get pushback. So one of the ones that I'm hearing uh, right away, even just in the last few minutes we've talked about, is the idea that these the wives involved in these uh, reports say they are happy. Uh, and so uh, do you have people saying things like, well, people who are in cults sometimes say that they're happy. So self-reporting data in terms of how you how you feel uh, may or may not actually be like an objective measure of of what. So, so people might be looking at them and saying they're not really quote unquote happy. Do you have that kind of, do you have people who are kind of pushing back on some of these results from the surveys? Yeah, not too much, but the survey, may, the researchers themselves deal with this. Um, okay. They do, they call it mystification, <laughs> mystification, you know, because you believe as a Christian, you believe you're supposed to be happy in this position. Um, then, then you do define yourself as happy. But the re the research was by so many different people. I mm -hmm. quote about, I, I think roughly 12, you know, a dozen, mm -hmm. about a dozen different sociologists. Um, and so they're all coming at, at it from somewhat different perspectives. And so the numbers are pretty high. You know, mm -hmm. uh, th these are not small studies. S and some, uh, some people say, <laughs> so my sister works at a um, battered women's shelter. <laughs> and so her pushback was, you realize that how they phrase the question often influences the answer. So I want to tell you that most of these surveys, and especially Brad Wilcox, who, who did the largest one, he's not asking the questions. He's going to these large government-run surveys. Um, listen to this. For the study, he drew data from three large surveys the National Survey of Families and Households, which represents American adults across the entire country, uh, about 35,000 respondents, that something called the General Social Survey, which is 24,000 respondents, and the Survey of Adults and Youths, uh, 20, about 2,000 respondents. So these are objective databases that are used by scholars, by journalists, by policymakers, by social scientists, uh, to measure various trends and attitudes. So he's not even asking the questions. Sure. Um, which is, I think, one of the strengths yeah. of, the, of these um, surveys. So what, what these large databases, which are run by the government, different social scientists will go in and pull out the info they want, right? So somebody might, might want to be looking at influences of race, and somebody else might want to be looking at influence of, of um, income. And somebody might want to look at single parent families. So they're all going to these large databases and pulling out what they want and then analyzing the numbers. So I think that makes it a little harder mm. for um, for researchers to find the answers they want, so to speak. Now, I do quote a lot of uh, sociologists and a few of the smaller studies were done by people who wrote their own questions, but the majority of them were not. And uh, what I find helpful is that um, even though they acknowledge there can be mystification, to use their term, the numbers, is, the sheer number of people that they interviewed is so large, and by people who had no agenda. Right. Oh, and Brad Wilcox himself doesn't have a dog in this fight, I should mention, because right. he's Catholic. And so 
he was not out to show that Protestant evangelical men do better. In fact, I'm, I'm sure he wasn't entirely happy with that finding <laughs> because ca- they do better than Catholic men. Mm-hmm. Um, I, in my book, I don't deal with all the categories that he analyzed. He analyzed evangelicals, Protestant evangelicals, Protestant mainline, and secular. And I left out the main line just to keep it simple. Um, but Catholics and Jews tend to be at the same level as mainline. So evangelicals test out on top, mainline test out sort of in the middle, and then secular men test out at the bottom, and then nominal men, nominal evangelicals are even worse. So that's the bigger picture. That's that's what they were looking for is, you know, where do all these groups fit? Right, right. One of the things you mentioned when you're talking about like the sheer volume of of uh, data that you've, you've you cite in the book, like here's all the here's all the studies. Like your footnotes are like the end notes of the chapters is like, but and I noticed this with Love Thy Body too. Like you are an incredibly thorough and kind of synthetic writer in some respects. Like you have like a lot of sources that you're throwing into the mix, and that you know it makes sense that you get excited when you can teach a class as because you can use your book as a as a, a way of saying, oh, but look at these primary sources that kind of came in the background uh definitely shows up a lot but and another book that i've read like that relatively recently would be um the making of of biblical womanhood by beth allison Barr, also a texan i want to say uh so not too far from each other um and i wanted to know i mean most of the books that i'm seeing come out of the evangelical i know admittedly this is a small you know subculture that i'm kind of highlighting, but there's been a number of them over the last couple of years that have come out from women authors in this kind of evangelical circle. And for the most part, they have been very pro-egalitarian. So for anybody who's listening and doesn't necessarily have a a whole boatload of uh, exposure with egalitarianism or complementarianism, which is two different words that are kind of currently being used uh, to describe I guess when you say complementarian, you tend to mean somebody who believes that there can be headship uh, or hierarchy or sometimes the negative word, or at least a word that's loaded with negativity is patriarchy. Uh, that these, these are possible kind of things to exist within a home or within a church context, uh, broadly speaking. And then egalitarian would be essentially that there is no functional uh, difference between men and women in terms of home life or in terms of um, church life or thus in terms of kind of culture that might not be the easiest way of defining those things but at the very least they exist as maybe poles on a spectrum but also probably not they're just kind of two different ways of thinking about how men and women can interrelate so most of these books have been very pro egalitarian and they're from authors who themselves i think would consider themselves egalitarians and so you even cite beth Barr's work i believe in this in this book here as a uh, there's a little pithy quote that suggests essentially that uh, there is no good to be found in the complementarian worldview and i noticed that when i was reading love thy body it was but it was quite a way in it was i want to say it was almost three quarters away into the book and i was like oh she's actually i think you would maybe i don't know if you'd self-describe as complementarian but at the very least you kind of come you seem to support that worldview uh and that struck me as atypical uh, given, like I said, the other kind of books that are kind of coming out and, and uh, from female authors in particular. So I wanted to know whether that's a difficult thing for you to hold uh, or whether you have, whether you get pushback from other female authors or female academics in that, whether you consider yourself to be a minority report or minority position in the academic, uh, Christian academic world at this point in time, or whether that just goes, you know, that's nothing for you to think about at all. Yeah, that's a good question, because you're right. Um, I would say that most most of the books that have come out recently have been critical of uh, complementarian men. One of my students said, she said, I'm, I'm egalitarian, I'm egalitarian, and you're defending complementarianism. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm defending complementarian men. <laughs> In other words, the studies have been done of these men. Mm. I'm not defining, I'm not really defending either ism. I'm reporting. I'm reporting the facts. And of course, the studies were done on complementary men because they were the ones who were being criticized. Uh, like I said, the sociologist said, where's the evidence? You know, you can't make these accusations, you know, without finding, going out and doing the studies. And that's what they did. They went out and did the studies. And so in a way, I'm not taking a stand 
either way, either way, because um, no, I'm reporting on what the studies show. In other words, uh, I am defending complementarian men because the soci sociological studies uh, and, and some I have some psychologists as well all show that evangelical men are doing very well. And by the way, some people say, why did you choose the label evangelical, which is also in disrepute more and more these days. I didn't. The researchers did. <laughs> that's who they that's who they chose to study. They chose to study evangelical men because those were the ones who were being criticized. And so um, although I have to tell you, I have I became more conservative. I think in writing the book, when I got to the chapters of domestic abuse, mm. if I talk about the fact that nominal Christians are more have higher rates of domestic violence and abuse than even secular men, then I have to deal with that. You know, otherwise it'll look like I'm sweeping it under the carpet. And so the last two chapters in the book deal with domestic violence, um, you know, give, giving uh, Christian principles for dealing with abuse in the home, and. I became a little bit more conservative just because I realized realistically, we have to acknowledge that men are bigger, stronger, and faster, just physically. Let's just stay with biology, right? The basic facts of biology. Let's not get into psychology because men and women are pretty similar. Well, if, if you have a bell curve for a, a psychological trait, even a, even a trait like aggressiveness, the bell curves overlap pretty closely. Mm -hmm. Um, men and women are far more alike than they are different. And uh, it's really, the major differences are this, at the extremes, you know, where the bell curves don't quite overlap. Sure. Um, but just physically, um, m men are obviously, they have a 75% greater upper body muscle mass, 90% greater upper body strength. They have more fast twitch muscles. That was a word I had to learn. That, <laughs> yeah. means, they, that means they can react more quickly. Mm. Um, and of course, they have testosterone. Uh, well, women do too, but men have more. And testosterone is known to cause um, be at the root of more aggression and more risk taking. And so, I can't. When I did the chapters on domestic abuse, I came to think we need to be a lot better about putting moral constraints on men's greater strength, or they will misuse it. If we close our eyes and say, oh, well, you know, differences don't matter or there aren't really major differences. I've even seen feminists say, well, if women would just work out, they would be as strong as men, which is just not true, unfortunately. <laughs> we have to acknowledge that men are bigger and stronger. And if we don't, we won't put moral restraints on it and, and, and abuse will be more common. So I felt like we need to hold men more responsible because they are bigger and stronger. There's a really interesting um, book that just came out from a secular writer that shows the same trajectory. It was so interesting. It's called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution by Louise Perry. And she was well known as a very secular, um, liberal, leftist even, leftist writer. She wrote for, she's British. She wrote for the New Statesman and other leftist publications. And then she went to work for a rape shelter. And it was the same thing. She said, we have to acknowledge that men are bigger and stronger or we're not going to protect women. Mm. You know, the old rules about chivalry, for example, were to protect women because men are bigger and stronger. And if you get in a tight spot and you're both half drunk, you know, he can coerce you. <laughs> um, so I've, came to feel more strongly about the need to acknowledge the differences, the sheer physical differences between men and women, because that is the first step to holding men more responsible for their greater strength. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. The context is everything. Uh, so like uh, you have a, a beautiful epilogue at the end of the book, uh, which is this, this great little story about the Titanic, uh, which is not exactly a beautiful story, but um just the idea that, you know, women and children first, uh, which, you know, we often will hear from my family and I, we take the, we take a boat across the, uh, the channel from uh, Nova Scotia to Newfoundland pretty much every summer. So we're on the water for about seven hours and we're always kind of wondering where the lifeboats are. Don't worry, there's lots of lifeboats. Uh, but it's kind of still latent in our memory, even though my kids have never probably heard the phrase, the idea that women and children first, um, that that's still kind of like a cultural thing. Just this idea that like, we're going to put 
what we, I guess the idea of the sentence is uh, either those who you value more would be one way of putting it. And possibly that has been construed by some or those who are more vulnerable uh, or a combination of those two things, I guess. We're going to value them. We're going to, we're going to put them with a priority first, rescue them. And then the, the men, the able-bodied, they will be the ones to stay behind, which is, as you point out in the book, a, a very Christian, uh, at the very least, a very religious, a very moral a thing to do. It is not natural. It's not something that you would just observe in in nature for the most part, uh, left to our own devices. And there's a beautiful story of the men who kind of rediscover this story and they start to reenact essentially this, this story. Um, uh, kind of almost almost like a kind of like the way that they reenact civil war things or uh, the way that they do cosplay with people that they carry their swords with them and whatnot. Uh, and the, the point being is that when I, when I read the, the story, I, I thought uh, just this kind of the kinds of things that they say, like they say, um, they have this back and forth that they go to the dignity and grace style, but most of all tonight, we toast their courage to those brave men here, here into the stewards, the men who stoked the boilers, the crew, and they kind of go through the people who went down with the ship, right? Um, and it's, it sounds beautiful. And then I, I got to the end of it, and then I read it again, and I tried to view it with the lens of somebody who had a different worldview. And I thought, um, could even this beautiful story be viewed as one, as one of kind of male chauvinism or male superiority? Could acknowledging uh, their ability or responsibility to go first, to lay themselves out. If it's based in strength or ontology, anything like that, does it, does it then, is it a self-defeating narrative to people that you're trying to help see that there is a good way to live that, that is actually putting yourself last? Is that, is there certain groups of people who don't want to be put first in that way, do you know what I'm trying to say? Um, yeah. Well, feminists have often argued against rules of chivalry, for example, you mm-hmm. know, letting a woman walk first to the door or whatever, mm-hmm. because they say, well, that that treats women as helpless, mm-hmm. and that's not good for women. Or they don't. They have they have actually worked against certain workplace protections mm-hmm. um, because, well, if women have to be treated with kid gloves, then they will not advance as quickly. And as a result, we have actually lost a lot of workplace p- protections for pregnant women, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, they're expected to live he- lift heavy boxes if they're working in, in a warehouse or if they're working around toxic chemicals. You know, it used to be, well, if she's pregnant, you know, uh, that's dangerous. So you move her to a different department. Well, I've read lots of stories by women who say, no, that's not the case anymore. Mm-hmm. But let me put... Um, let me give you some more studies just to put the more positive light on it, because one of the things that uh, I was really happy to see is that evangelicalism has the same impact around the globe. I limit the book mostly to America, but I do have a section on sociologists and anthropologists who've done work in other countries. So, for example, I start with one anthropologist who did a study in Colombia. She's a Marxist. She expects to find that everywhere a sort of conservative Christianity goes, it's going to lead to oppressive patriarchy and so on. And she was stunned because she said instead, she found that uh, um, by contrast with machismo culture in Latin America, uh, Christian men did very well. So machismo culture says, you know, you're a real man. You know, if you're spending your time out in public, you know, drinking, gambling and going to prostitutes and so on. Mm-hmm. And when a man becomes an evangelical Christian, he stops doing that. He directs his money to his family. His mm-hmm. family's standard of living increases. The whole family benefits. And so she says, um, Colombian evangelicalism can be seen as a strategic women's movement because it enhances female status. Mm-hmm. And I found a few others saying this too. This is a sociologist. Uh, at the University of London. And so she did a much larger study of Africa and Asia as well. And she titles her study, The Evangelical Gender Paradox, because she thinks it's paradoxical that you know we would, ex- we would expect what she calls a backward, quote unquote, unsophisticated 
version of Christianity, we would expect to have negative impulse impact. And she said, in fact, it has a very positive impact in the developing world. And she says, you know, partly because, you know, the church, by the way, she said, the church stands behind these women then. And here's what uh, she says, the church helps men put the needs of the household above their own pleasure. And she too, she uses almost the same language. She says, um, Christianity and very conservative Christianity has done more to improve the lives of poor women around the globe than Western aid societies or Western feminism has. And she too says, it's, you could call it a women's movement. And my third quote is from a secular person. Well, I don't know, the first, the first two was secular as well, but um, the, the last quote is from a New York Times columnist. And he wrote a best-selling book. So some of some people may know this book. It's called Half the Sky. Hmm. It's from a proverb women hold up half the sky. And he and his wife co-authors this book, and they also came to the same conclusion. They say, and, and here's a quote: in developing countries, the evangelical church applies community pressure to bring wayward husbands back into line. And then it's, they say it discourages alcoholism and adultery. And, and these have caused enormous suffering to women around the globe. So it's amazing. I thought that was wonderful that it's not just in the West, but everywhere Christianity goes, the sociolo sociologists and the anthropologists are telling us that Christianity imp improves the character of men and reconnects them to their family. Wow. Not necessarily what you would have expected to find, I guess, based upon some of the other headlines we see. Yeah. I mean, and your book is, uh, it, it's got so much more in there. So uh, it, it is going to be launching really soon. So you can find it pretty much anywhere that you find books, but obviously Amazon uh, is a great place to do that. The Toxic War on Masculinity. Uh, I, I recommend that anybody who is kind of concerned with these kinds of things and, and wants uh, not just a good read, but as, as we've already mentioned, a place that gives you so many other places to look. If you even just go to the back of the book and just start working through the sources, uh, you'll probably never get there because uh, you've been you've been spending so much time pouring into it. So I uh, really appreciate your time. appreciate your insights on this, Professor Piercy. It's been a wonderful conversation and I hope the rest of your day is great. Thank you, Mark. It was good talking with you.